Welcome to Rural is Cool. This week, I chat with Becky McCray. Becky is a rural entrepreneur, a cattle rancher, speaker, and writer. Becky has a passion for learning about rural communities and passing that knowledge on. We chat about her life as well as a survey of rural challenges in which over 1,400 rural people have filled out. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Also, if you could give Rural is Cool a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, it helps others like you find this podcast. Well, hello, Becky. How are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. Thank you so much for the invitation. I love oh. the rural is cool. <laughs> uh, that actually started as uh, I, I dabble in photography, and that was one of the hashtags that I used to get my friends uh, to look at my pictures because I, I think rural is pretty cool. I use the hashtag small town cool for like 10 years now. So I recommend that we all jump on the rural is cool, the small town cool, and just take advantage of how cool we really are. I am going to steal the small town cool. Use it all the time. That's oh. It is all out there. I like that. I like that. So uh, Becky, you are uh, literally in the weeds in, in of rural. You, you and your, your partner in crime, they're probably have the best um, finger on the pulse of rural. So, so kind of tell us a little bit about you, your guys' organization and, and how you got started. Absolutely. I live in Oklahoma. I'm in rural Northwest Oklahoma in a community called Hopeton, which is about 30 people. We're not a town. We're <laughs> unincorporated. Um, I have wheat fields on two sides. I know you said you can sympathize because you have corn on three sides. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're just like two little rows of houses right up on, on each side of the street. And I've been an entrepreneur since about junior high school. And I've been in rural communities for most of my life. And uh, Deb Brown, who is in Iowa, was working as a small town chamber of commerce director. And I had known her online for several years. And I said, we should do something for small towns together. And she said, well, what would we do? And so we started making up things that we could do that would work for small towns. And we just, we tried experiments. But by that time, I had been writing and speaking about small towns since 2006, when I started my site, Small Biz Survival, which was written for business people in small towns and rural areas, because the business challenges are different in a small town. And what, we, what Deb and I do together, we call it Savior.town. That's our name and our website address. And the idea is not that we're going to save your town. It's, a, it's for you. You are going to save your town with the things you do. The decisions you make shape what your town will become next. You know, I, I think that is a super important thing to, to point out and, and, you know, amplify that message is, is nobody's going to come in and do it. There, there's, it, it's you or nobody else. Well, Mike, I think you're also a great example of this, of someone who has returned to a rural area, but you've also brought fresh thinking and you are sharing that with the people in your community. And that, while some will welcome it, some won't, whether you're a person who left your community or not, you're going to get the same reception. Some people will love your fresh thinking and some will not. And that's not a problem. That's okay. You're just going to be attracted to the people who like your ideas and are willing to work with you. And that's where you focus. And don't worry too much about the 
people who don't like it because well, they're going to not like it anyway. You know, there, I, I have two schools of thought on that. One is, is the people who, who don't like it aren't supporters anyway. So they, they, it is what it is. And the other thought is if they don't like my idea, maybe they're coming up with their own and, and their idea might even be better. Oh, yeah. um, so I, ideas spark ideas, whether, whether it's, it's building off of your great idea, because all my ideas are great, let's be honest. Right. <laughs> um, whether it's building off, off of the great idea I come up with, or it's coming up with an idea to protest my idea, the, it, it all stimulates the, the, the saving, the building, the, the making our, our communities better. We're all creating our communities each day by the things that we choose to do. So when we choose to um, take our lunch and go sit down outside downtown and enjoy lunch with a friend, that's making our town one kind of community. And then if we like get in the car and drive through downtown at 35 miles an hour and go eat at the chain store out by the main road, then we're making our community a different kind of community. And on different days, we're going to do different things. So it's this, it's this constant crowdsourcing of what our community is going to become. It used to be all very top down and there were a few guys in the back room who decided for everybody. And now we're all crowdsourcing it together. It's interesting where, where I live. We recently had three schools, three neighboring towns who, when I was a kid were rivals consolidated into one school district. So now it's not just supporting our town it's supporting our little, we're going to call it a metro area just to be fun, to, to you know, support our whole area. So it's, you might eat out one weekend in your town, but then you want to make sure that the the, the other two towns get business. So you, you kind of share the love around it. It's a really neat um, and I think kind of unique rural perspective. So I'm going to give you some new terminology to go with that. There's micropolitan communities, which are, this is an actual definition from the U.S. government. The Office of Management and Budget says that if a community is above 10,000 and below 50,000, then it's a micropolitan. Okay, so 10,000 is huge to you and me. (laughs) Right. So then we have other communities. If you are 10,000 and down to about 1,000, we're going to call those nanopolitans because that'll be right under micro. We're going to go to nano. So nanopolitans, it's over 1,000, but under 10. So that's a, that covers quite a bit of territory. And then we get to the actual small towns. And these are your picopolitan towns. And they are 1,000 and under. Now, nanopolitan and picopolitan do not have official government definitions, but I felt like we should go ahead and apply a term so that we would have that phrase so that when you say, well, you know, in our little Picopolitan joint area here, we have the greater Picopolitan area covering our three communities. Together, we add up to a nanopolitan, right? So you, it just gives some additional depth of meaning so that we're not all just like, oh, well, you're just rural because you're under 50,000. You know, I, I really like that breaking it down because a lot of people don't understand that the federal definition of rural is 50,000 people. Um, when you go for a rural workforce housing grant, our community of 500 people is competing with that same community of 49,000 people. 
And, and boy, doesn't that seem fair. And I tell you what, every different agency in the government has its own definitions. You know, for census, they sometimes they break it by 2,500 and says anything under 2,500 is just rural. And I'm like, a town of a thousand people isn't really rural to me. It's Wow. It's at Eight. least a picopolitan because, you know, and it's probably a nanopolitan because they're over a thousand. They are a politan at that point. Yeah. So I'm acknowledging we all have politan status <laughs> once we start gathering at least, at least, you know, we'll say 30 because that's my town, 30 people. <laughs> the perspective though, when, when I lived in, in Houston, the, the third, fourth largest city in America, I thought rural was was 50,000 people. I thought that was a yeah. pretty small town. Sure. Uh, I had forgotten or, or pushed back to my mind what a community of 300 or 90 or 30 um, is. And that is truly a rural community. And, and those are the communities that, that need not only the grassroots organizations like yours and, and the things that, that I'm involved in, but also need the, to not be overlooked in the, right. the federal and state funding. Yes. And to, to acknowledge that if you are in a community of any number of people and you're trying to do good things, then you're doing good things. And that is valuable. Even if you feel like the only one, or you feel like <laughs> I'm the only one in this town who gets it. Find that one sympathetic voice, even if it needs to be, if you just, if you don't have anybody else in town, you get our newsletters because we are your sympathetic voice from elsewhere. Listening to this podcast, these are your sympathetic voices from other communities. You go, I'm not, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I'm not right, alone. Right. I have totally lost it. There are other people doing good things in very small communities. You know, for, for as much as, as the word media gets a, a bad rap these days, um, this form of media is one that has helped me stay connected with, with some of my, my ideas and, and uh, making sure that, that uh, I'm a little bit in check. You know, some of the podcasts I listen to and, and the, the online articles and things that I, I read um, to make sure that I'm not trying to become a city in my tiny little small town. You know, the media themes, when we talk about kind of the old media and the themes that they share about small towns... In our survey of rural challenges, we asked people what their actual challenges were, and they just don't line up with the challenges we hear the most often in those media stories. Do you, do you think part of that is um, the people in, a, in, in a, a rural area might not have the time to drive to the city to voice their issue and their problem to that, that news anchor or that? interview because they're certainly not coming out to visit us <laughs> you know if when they do come out they have they have an assignment right like someone has already decided what the assignment is and that's why they're here usually because something bad happened an employer a major employer closed there was right. a natural disaster um, there was a very bad headline in your town for whatever reason and that's why the media arrives which the function of media is to share the news, which by definition is the bad news. I have a, I have a uh, mass communications minor from a million years ago in college. And I know that this, you know, the list of what makes something newsworthy includes factors that means that when you show up with your assignment in a town, you're not going to dig into what's really great about living here. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. So, you know, how many stories have we had about people's rural people's national politics 
Well, when we asked them what their challenges and assets were, nobody mentioned national politics. How many stories about poverty and crime and drug abuse and opioid challenges have we had? And yet when we ask people what are their challenges, those are some of the least selected challenges. They rank among the lowest. So it's, it's really fascinating because that's the story that dominates in media coverage by design, and yet it does not match our reality as rural people. You know, back in the, the old days, news was, was pure facts, and, and it was um, delivered by, by the three or four major networks that were considered reliable news. Um, and now, you know, anybody can create a network, anybody can call themselves news um, when most of it's entertainment. And um, I think that there's a, a very distinct difference between a journalist and a news anchor that is um, an entertainer. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and they, like you said, they, they um, gear their stories towards what's going to get the most clicks or the most eyeballs or the, the biggest sponsors or um, so, so things like what, what you're doing with this survey to bring out what's really important to rural people, I think, needs to be amplified as, as much as we can. What, why don't you tell us a little bit about the survey, how it started, um, and where it's going? Absolutely. Um, I told you that I write a, for a site called smallbizsurvival.com, and that's a site I started in 2006 to talk about what are the challenges for rural businesses. And by 2015, I thought, you know, I'm going to just run a survey and see what people want me to write about next, because I had written quite a little bit in those nine years. <laughs> I need some ideas here. So um, I put out a survey and just said, what would you be really excited if I wrote more about it? And that was the question. And people proceeded to tell me what their challenges were and what their assets were and what they were excited and working on. Um, and I thought, hey, that's great. I'm glad I got that information. And then I, as I told friends, look how this does not match up with what they say in the media. Look how this doesn't match up with the services that get offered to rural people. Look how it doesn't match up with rural policy that's passed at the state and federal levels. People said, you, you have to release the survey results. So suddenly it became a public survey, um, releasing just the top five challenges and, and some quotes that were not identifiable to people. And then since then, I decided, you know, in a couple of years, I'm going to do it again. So 2015, 2017, 2019, and we just released 2021, 1,400 rural people from the United States, Canada, Australia, UK primarily, um, answered and told us what their challenges were, what their assets were, and what they most wanted help with. And this has been the most amazing resource for us and to share with the community and to share with new media like you and the people who listen that, wow, here is what other rural people are thinking. And so if you are, if you are a rural person, it's really great to hear how different are my challenges for, from the kind of typical challenges that were found on the survey. If you're in media, it's really great to get this more broad picture of what are the actual challenges in rural so that you have more depth as you approach an assignment. And if you offer services or are working in policy around rural, it is really, really eye-opening to see what people say they most want help with. 
So how do, I've got so many questions. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, so how do, you, you said there, there's um, a few different countries also that, that um, were, they added their voices to the survey. So yeah. two questions on that. One, how did they stumble upon this? And then two, how does, how do we stack up against the other countries? Um, we're very similar, incredibly similar between especially U.S. and Canada. So that's not particularly surprising, but also right. U.S. and Australia, huge similarities. U.S. and U.K. is just slightly different because U.K. rural communities face a lot more gentrification as a, as a smaller geographical area. Uh, people pouring out of larger metropolitan communities have had a greater influence of, of gentrifying the, the rural communities. So there's, there's slightly different dynamics in the UK than say in Australia where they have huge wide open territories, Canada also, and also here. Um, and how did they find it? Okay, I've been writing about this stuff since 2006. <laughs> the internet is a landmine field. You cannot avoid finding small biz survival, savior.town when you're searching for small town stuff online. And I know it's true because that's how you found us too. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's interesting because uh, I have a um, devout following. It, it's a very small, but... Um, the UK, Germany, and India actually awesome. um, are my the foreign countries who listen to my podcast the most. So, so yeah, Excellent. the internet, the internet's a, the wild, wild west. <laughs> it's it's terrific in these these connections we can make, and we can find. It's the little things that make make us different. It's the big things where we are far more together as human beings than we give ourselves credit for. Yeah, I, I think that's um, th there's all these all these little things that that define who each person is as an individual. But the the common theme of wanting to make sure that you're doing good in your neighbor and their neighbors, um, and that your community is successful. I think those are um, just innate human characteristics. Um, the people who don't want that are the outliers. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so, uh, what in in your survey? How do you? Um, unfortunately, I didn't see the survey to take it, so so my voice wasn't in there, and it makes me very sad. But we'll um, be back. We'll be back, and so twenty twenty three will be coming soon. I know it doesn't sound like it, but pros I promise it won't be long. What is the average population size, or or where do you make the cutoff? to say yours is a rural voice and it can be included in the survey and, and um, how, how do you define that? Now we, we let people decide for themselves if they are rural. So we don't put a cutoff on there and go, you're not small town enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're too small. We can't let you in. So we don't have that. So we let people kind of self-identify. I feel rural today. I think I'll take the survey. So, <laughs> We get a, mostly, mostly people tell us where they're from. We have an open question that says, tell us where you're from. We don't track your IP necessarily. Um, our old software used to do that. We used to use the um, SurveyMonkey and they tracked your IPs. But the service that we just used was MailChimp. There's a very, there's a monkey theme going on there. But MailChimp <laughs> did not automatically track your IPs. And so we just put an open question. Tell us what your country is, your state and your city, if you feel like it, right? Like, so you don't have to give us, if you're, if you're afraid people will figure out who, who you are by where you're from, you don't have to say. 
primarily those are, from what we see, people really are from small communities. Knowing also that like my IP address, I'm with a rural telephone cooperative provides my internet. And so my IP address varies depending on where they're making their connection through. And sometimes I show up in different communities all across Northwest Oklahoma. So (laughs) don't trust the IP address necessarily. That's another thing that wasn't necessarily built for rural, right? Was was the that identification system. (laughs) Right. So most people identified themselves as rural when they took the survey. And then some people said, um, I work with small towns or I work with a lot of rural communities. And so I'm answering with what I see, which I still consider valid, even if you're not, your residence isn't in a small community. If you spend a lot of time in rural communities and you wanted to answer the survey, we're, we're fine with that as well. What do you see as the maybe top two or three opportunities for rural communities based on the survey, um, like, like areas that they could improve things that people thought were, were um, negatives about their community. Okay. We can go about this either direction. The opportunities that we saw when we asked people to identify their assets and the most positive things, the, the big theme this year was around nature and the, uh, the natural setting around their community, their access to nature, which we know is good for your health. Um, being, being surrounded by green space and, and um, natural areas is one of our assets. People talked about the tourism opportunities they have because they're in a small town. It's easier to get out of town if you're in a small town. <laughs> if you want right. to go out and enjoy outdoor recreation, Small towns have it going on. So that was a big theme in people's discussion of assets this year. The second big asset class that people mentioned were their people, people who had positive attitudes, people who are open to doing interesting things, people who are trying new things. Now, interestingly, the flip side of that is people are also our biggest challenge attitudes. Um, It shows up every time we have an open spot where we're like, okay, here's some open text. Just tell us what you're thinking. Immediately we hear about conflict and apathy and resistance to new ideas. And I'm beating my head against a brick wall and, oh my gosh, you know, this resistance to change, they're driving me crazy, right? That comes up almost immediately. And so this is clearly the biggest attitude challenge. So people are our biggest asset and also our biggest challenge. And intriguingly, There's almost no help in the way of services or training or support offered to rural communities about how do you help communities be more open to new ideas. So we have in um, Nebraska, and I believe there's in Iowa, ours touches Iowa too, and I'm I'm sure it's a a national organization, the Center for Rural Affairs. Yes. And they actually recently did a class on how to get your people more involved and more open to ideas. Unfortunately, it was, it was a scheduling conflict for me, so I wasn't able to attend. But the next one I, I want to go sit and listen to and hear what the idea is on how to get people involved, how to get people to open their minds and, and want change. Absolutely. I have a little trouble, not to knock the CFRA because they do good work, but I have a little trouble with the fact that it was a training held in a location at a time and a place in a formal way. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a problem right there. Um, uh, the fa- so there are, there are ways to help your community be more open to new ideas, and they almost never involve taking people into a meeting room for a formal meeting. Um, 
so so what do you suggest to um because that's a, that's every small town's biggest um gripe i think is you know the same five people do everything and it's yeah, yes. um so how do you get more people involved how do you get them um excited about a project or or an event or we have a method called the idea friendly method that we write about it extensively you can go read about it with no cost right like go search idea friendly method you will find lots of stuff that'll get you going here's what you do you take your big idea for your community And then you use that big idea to gather your crowd, to attract and entice the people who are also thinking positively and are interested in that idea and want to do something. And maybe have been kind of beaten down by the old way of doing things. And they're kind of waiting for somebody to start something so they can join in. So you're going to use your big idea to gather your crowd. That's one part of it. And then you're going to take your crowd and you're going to talk with people. You're going to ask a lot of questions that help you to build connections between and among the people that have come into your crowd and to reach the resources you need to get the thing done. So you're building connections. And so that's turning your crowd into a powerful network by building connections. And then you and your newly powerful network, you're going to accomplish that big idea you had, but you're going to do it by taking small steps. And that's the last piece, take small steps. So instead of spending a lot of time in the meeting room, discussing, planning, voting, using sticky dots to decide what's most important to the people in the room, you know, obsessing over the fact that people couldn't make it to the meeting and trying to write it all out and nail it all down and get it all perfect before anybody finds out, you know, before you reveal it to the public and then hope everybody will jump on the bandwagon with you. Instead, you're going to take small steps. You're going to put your practical ideas into action right away to shape a better future for your community. So that's it, idea friendly. Gather your crowd, build connections, take small steps, and it's not in a meeting room. It's out in the town and in the community and doing things. You know, I, I think that um, out in the town and doing things is is two very key parts of that, right? Is is um, in a small town, that, that's what we do. You, you don't... Um, make an appointment to see the banker. You just walk in, or or you text them, or you run into them at the local greasy spoon, and um, th- that's where you work out the details of your loan. Right? You you might sign right. a paper, you might not. Um, yeah, the, the it same- starts that way, right? Like we meet people at the post office. Oh, hey, I've been meaning to talk to you. I got to call you later. Right? Right? <laughs> right? Or uh, that that's how you uh, buy your car or whatever. Right? You just you run into the person. Here's, here's a real world example. A woman told me that she and her beautification committee, they did not have any trouble getting people to the same people to come to the committee meeting where she served cake because she's serving cake. Yep. Okay. So then she send, sends around the sign up sheet and says, come sign up for the cleanup day at the park. We're going to go weed the flower beds and clean things up at the park because we're the beautification committee. And everybody's like, oh, I'm too busy. I can't come. I don't have a time, you know, none of these times on the time slot fit. So I can't come. They had used up. She said, they must've used up their only available hour to come and eat cake. (laughs) So what she did the next time is she said, okay, the next meeting of the beautification committee is at the park. (laughs) 
bring your gloves. We're going to weed the flower beds, talk about our business. And afterwards, we're all going to go down to the local uh, coffee shop, bakery place and eat ice cream together, which is perfect, right? Like, so we're going to weed and talk business and then we'll have ice cream, right? right? From a local business. So what it's changing the perspective from meet and plan to take small steps. Yep. Yep. And, you know, I, I read it in an article and, and this is something that I try to do. I, I fail most of the time, but I um, mean, it falls right in line with this is, is don't ask for that big commitment. Ask for, for small commitments. Can you do this yes. on this date? Yes. Not, yes. can you come to a meeting every Thursday, you know, and it, it falls right into the idea friendly method. And, and you, that just takes it to the next level. And I, I'm, as you were saying it, I remember watching some conference. I think it might've been the mid mid States economic development conference that, that um, you spoke about this method. Um, uh, I, I definitely think that it's um, very effective and to get things done. Um, well, thank you. It's, it's something that it took a lot of years to develop the idea and to boil it down and to make it as simple as possible, but well, no simpler. It, it's one of those things that you probably did for a long time and didn't, couldn't define it. <laughs> it is. Well, I was trained. I'm so old. I was trained in the committee structure and, you know, committees and subcommittees and hierarchical and top down. And it's this entire organizational chart method that was actually invented starting in the 1860s, 1870s, 1890s timeframe when the railroad decided we needed an organizational chart so that they could organize things all across. And then we ended up with like Robert's Rules of Order and the typewriter became widely available. And suddenly we invented the way we did things for a long time. And we had to reinvent ways of doing things. And so there's lots of names for it from agile project management to strategic doing of lots of different ways to think about how do we relate to each other and make things happen now that we don't have to rely on manual typewriters and expensive uh, long distance telephone calls. We can do things differently now. Right. Right. Um, it, it's uh some of that stuff though is, is hard to break people of those, those yes. old habits. You know, yes. what, one of the things that, that, and um, you're not trying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to stop you there because we're not trying to break people of their old habits. We are trying to entice them into our wonderful new way of doing things. And so if the beautification committee had simply announced, okay, I'm going to break you of your old habits. Well, we're never holding a meeting again. We're, we're going to go to a decentralized format and we're going to, you know, agile project management our way out of this thing. No, she said, bring your gloves, come here, help weed if you can, and then we'll go eat ice cream, right? Like that, that's enticing. We're going to go for ice cream. I'm in. <laughs> right. I, I think one of the things that, and, and for better or worse, I think, Technology has had a really good impact on having people be able to shift their way of thinking from the way that I have always done something to the new way, you know, because, you know, there's a a new social media platform every year. There's, um, there's website redesigns and there's new, new tech. So you constantly have to learn and change. And if you want to be a part of, 
your circle, you have to, to learn what they're all doing. So I think that has had a huge psychological impact on people being able to shift their paradigms just a little bit in these things like the gardening club, the beautification committee and, and things yeah. like that. Over 10 years ago, Clay Shirky wrote a book called Here Comes Everybody, in which he kind of presaged a lot of what we would be doing in this new way of organizing ourselves and that, you know, the, the, the bottom had dropped out of the cost of organizing something. It used to be, you know, really big, hard and expensive to set up an organization. And now I can just message you and we can make it happen. And, right. And a lot of those trends are, are show up in Clay Shirky's book. The, the gamification of the algorithm kind of absorbed a lot of our mental energy that should have gone into doing amazing new stuff. So as we move away from the, from the, algorithm driving of uh, trapping people's attention and sucking them in. And we move into more of the tools being useful to us and tapping AI, in fact, to bring to us only the information we want and need to curate for us a little more actively so that it's not a, an algorithm we can't control, but that something really smart is, is serving our best interests then we're going to see a lot more of those trends that that Shirky predicts are going to play out in front of us over the coming decade. I was taking some notes here. I, I'm going to make sure I check out that book. Um, and because it's been around for a long time, your library probably has a copy. Or a, and if your library is really awesome, they have the ebook copy. I love my library is able to check out ebooks to me. So, you know that's that's. Uh... Com- completely derail the whole conversation. Yeah, that's one of the the resources that just is not utilized enough in in our communities as a library. And our um, libraries are reinventing themselves. They're becoming centers for entrepreneurship. They provide social services. In the in the past year, we've learned how many libraries are actually central to distributing food in communities. So libraries are far from losing their relevance, but they are being reinvented in a way that most of us have not noticed and appreciated the amazing things that are going on in libraries today. I agree 100%. You know, our, our local libraries here have the summer reading programs and the after school programs and um, the, the quilt club meets it at the library. And, and there's just so many uses that, that aren't just books anymore that, that, I, I hope that all of the libraries across the, the country are, are standing up and yelling about all these things they do besides just books. <laughs> we have to, because, you know, in our small towns, unless we're the ones using the library, we don't realize how things are changing. I used to go in before the pandemic, a colleague of mine that locally, we would go sit down at the library and it was like mini co-working. She and I would sit, a, sit there with our laptops <laughs> and work on stuff. And, in one day, somebody was there to, to ask questions about genealogy and local resources. There was a job seeker using a computer to apply for jobs. Uh, there were kids that had come in to do some research on something else. And uh, I don't even remember what else. And we're doing co-working, right? Like, so it, the, the library serves as a hub in the community. And it's, it's something that if you haven't been watching for it, you've missed the change. And, and, and there's also books. <laughs> and there's books and ebooks. Bless them for the ebooks and the magazine checkout. Digital magazines on my iPad. Yes, please. Um, yeah, over, Overdrive was, was, is one of those little hidden gems that if you're not yes. part of the library, you don't, you know, you're like, oh, well, you know, I, I only read ebooks. Well, go to your library. They have it. 
audiobooks. <laughs> they have it and it's all free. If you check it right out, your library will be happy to support you. Yep, yep. So we talked um, a little bit about the survey. I want to talk just a little bit more. Um, I, I know your, your time's valuable, so I don't want to take up your whole afternoon. I um, have to get to the post office before the window closes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so of the takeaways on, on this survey, one of, one of my passion projects is rural internet, rural broadband. Yes. Um, and yes. I, should, I, should, I should redefine that as rural high-speed reliable internet. Yes, get the qualifiers um, in there, please. Yes. Because there's a difference between internet, there's a difference between broadband definitions and high-speed reliable internet. Affordable um, would be nice. So on your survey, what did people say about the internet? Surprisingly enough, internet did not rank highly on the number of challenges. And we do list it as an opportunity, as, as a thing they can choose. And I think that comes down to two factors. One is the survey is conducted online and the people with the biggest challenges probably didn't, you know, have not stumbled across us or run into the survey. Uh, the second thing about that is people tend to either like their internet service, it's okay, right? It's good enough. Or they feel helpless about their internet service. Not everybody's like you, Mike. Not everybody's going to get on the phone and talk to 300 people in order to get them to drag fiber to their house. Um, most people <laughs> that I've spoken to that have bad internet really feel pretty helpless about it. Like there's nothing we can do. We've tried to get the telecom to come out here. They won't do it. We've tried to get them to extend the fiber from the school to other places in town. They won't do it. Um, and it's because people have beat their heads against that wall long enough that they feel like they've not been able to accomplish anything. And also because, of course, different states have differing regulations of what, who can and cannot provide Internet service and whether competition is allowed. And so it's all this complicated, messy stuff. But there are, uh, you know, in speaking with people specifically about Internet challenges, I've heard the usuals of, you know, the internet comes one pole away from my house and there it stops, right? <laughs> yep. I'm on dial-up because the internet is right there and I cannot have it, right? So I hear about those. Um, one person who lives within uh, within the, the boundaries of the metropolitan Oklahoma City area, but in a rural section of that boundary, um, who across the street is the affluent zip code. And on his side of the street is the less affluent zip code with the more diverse population. Affluent zip code, everyone has great high-speed internet. The provider stops at the road and does not serve <laughs> the less affluent zip code, right? So these are the frustrations that people have. And because especially agriculture and all kinds of rural businesses, people moving from Houston into rural Nebraska who bring their work with them and need to be able to transmit large files, um, people have real challenges and need for broadband. And over this past year, we saw the massive move that got kind of labeled Zoom towns of Remote work suddenly yeah, took yeah. a great leap forward. And even as at the moment we're recording, people are moving back to work and back into hybrid work settings. Even then, we're going to retain some work from home and we're going to have more flexibility about where people choose to live and still able to, <coughs> to do their work and connect online. 
So that's not going to entirely go away. There are plenty of reasons that we have to invest. And we are at the moment where in the U.S. at least, the federal government is investing in a big way in broadband internet for that can be for rural communities. And there's lots of innovative and cool programs out there and even being run from the grassroots up. Um, so there's lots to be excited about. Um, there's a lot of challenges out there, but I think the biggest challenge is most of us feel like there's just not a thing that we can do as consumers to change it. You know, it, it, it's crazy. So in 2018, I think it was, maybe it was 2019, um, I went down and, and testified in front of uh, the, the, the communications committee of our um, unicameral and nice. down in Lincoln and, and helped get a bill passed that would help with broadband testing, uh, broadband right. speed testing. Yes. Because one of the, the big deterrents for uh, the rollout of broadband is that things are set on a census block level. And when you get out to a rural area, census blocks can be miles and miles. Yes. So if one house in that miles and miles is served, the whole block is considered served. Which is lame. Nobody right. Um, I'm served and my neighbor isn't. Part of this bill was to, to roll out a testing mechanism. Nice. So the, the state contracted with this third party and, and they're, they're doing, um, asking everybody to test their speed. So I just pulled up in, in front of me, my county, Antelope County, Nebraska. There's listed 300 and, or I'm sorry, 3,284 households. 50 of those households have chosen to click the link and, and test their speed. Sure, sure. So part of the problem that we have in, in rural is that people aren't doing the simple task of clicking the link, right? Most of them probably haven't heard, right? It, it, um, as all the efforts to get the word out, and most of them, it has probably never entered, entered their consciousness. Right. It, it's, um, and, and I think a lot of it is, is my internet's good enough right? Yeah. It's not dial up anymore. So I'm excited. Um, right. People don't know what they don't know. Exactly. Right. Um, I, I get that too. I do. I think, I think that there's um, an issue with not just uh, people are kind of satisfied with what they have, but that they haven't had the opportunity to try anything larger and are not aware of what they could be accomplishing if they had better service. Um, right. There's a lot of good data coming out of Microsoft. Microsoft has, you know, Google has a lot of data too, but they're not releasing it. Microsoft is releasing their user data to tell what speeds people actually connect with. So a lot like your testing project, you know, Microsoft's data nationwide in the US and probably global um, can tell what speed people have when they connect to the Microsoft servers, which turns out to be a large chunk of the U.S. population. <laughs> so I've been pleased to see that large of a corporation take that big of an interest in rural broadband to release their data, which is extremely useful. You know, the, I, it, was, it was either Microsoft or Amazon a few years back did a study and they said, if you dug fiber to every rural home, it would cost X number of dollars. But the net impact to mm. the economy would be in the billions of dollars. There's a guy at Oklahoma State University named Dr. Brian Whitaker who has done extensive research on 
what is the economic impact of broadband in rural communities? And what can we do to increase uptake once it's offered so that people know what's available and what difference it will make to their lives? So Brian Whitaker, and it's spelled like White Acre, Whitaker. Um, And so if you need some beautiful academic studies to back this up, then he is one really good source for that kind of information. Excellent, excellent. So... We're we're coming up to to your your hard stop here because our our uh, post offices locally uh, close at two thirty. Um, th- it's that true. Was, that was one of the challenges when I first moved back. I w- I was working a, a nine to five in a different community, and my bank was open um, eight thirty to three thirty. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Um, hey, my even my little bank now has like take a picture and deposit the check, which I think well, is awesome. Yeah, we re- we recently got mobile banking, and and that that's been a lifesaver. Um, we've had online banking for a while, so we're very spoiled here. Oh, you're 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 ahead of the curve. <laughs> so, what is something, and and I, I think this will be a really good spot to to close on is what is something that your community Community, not just you, but you're in the community you live in. What's something that they're, they could improve on and do better? And what is something that they're doing very well that you would like to see emulated? Okay, I'm going to answer for my entire county, which is Woods County, Oklahoma, because in Hopeton with 30 people, um, we're not necessarily representative of, you know, the, the broader perspective of, of what rural can be. Fair enough. Um, uh, there are, there's so many positive, wonderful things. There's um, in the big town of Alva, which has a population of just under f- or around 5,000. Uh, there's a beautiful art scene that has been slowly developing over the past 10 years or so. And it is probably the largest change in our community since I was a kid. Um, and to, so to see the arts start to play a larger role in the community of Alva is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, in the town of Avard, which is not a town either, but is probably 50 people, um, two railroad lines that cross the country actually come within a mile of each other, but do not connect. And so it was actually one of those economic development projects. They've come up with this. They've built a rail yard in between those two rail lines so that you can now connect on to either of them. You could pull a train from one to the other. Um, and it is developing as an industrial development area in the area of extremely sparse population near a town of 50 and it's, you know, 10 miles to the nearest big town, which is Alpha. So that's really cool. That's some thinking outside the box. I'm saying it's beautiful. And it's been, it's taken 10 years so far and it's still got a long way to go, but they already bring gravel. And I tell you, I buy my gravel from there for our farm. Um <laughs> The town of Winoka, Oklahoma, which I actually used to be city administrator for Winoka, Oklahoma back in the day. Beautiful stuff going on around tourism and actually took the very brave step of allowing um, ATVs from the, there's a, 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 the little Sahara State Park is the recreation area for all-terrain vehicles. And they took the brave step of allowing ATVs to drive on the city streets. And so they've built a connection from the state park a couple of miles south of town Hmm to their downtown. And it has changed and reshaped that community in amazing ways. And then also we have the community of Freedom Oklahoma doing cool stuff around their Western heritage. They still hold the largest open rodeo in the, or in the West, which is like you could pull up with a, your trailer and your horse and you can enter the rodeo. It's at Freedom Oklahoma. Um, and then here in Hopeton, one of the things that 
I think is a, a big positive in what we do is we have just gotten fiber laid. Fiber optic has been laid from the phone switch here in town. I'm telling you 30 people, they have run the fiber up and down the town. They haven't yet signed us up. Um, when I thought it was five years away, I was okay. But now that I know that it's going to happen really soon, I can't wait. <laughs> I'm dying. I'm dying. I've got well, to have it. So that- I'm very excited to see the development of fiber optic service. We are the first community in the county and probably in a two, three county area to have full fiber optic. And we are going to be, we are going to be just like, we're so awesome. Did the telecom, um, did the telecom fund that or did they? Use you private know, funds. I only know what I learned from the guys who were pulling the cable <laughs> in the ditch, right? They didn't call us up and say, hey, we're going to put fiber in your town. Are you excited? Because I actually called them years ago and said, I'll pay, please. Just right. like, I know you brought fiber to the switch. I'll pay to run the fiber to my house, right? Right. I know you did that. Well, okay. So what I the first thing I heard was that they were going to run fiber from the switch to the church, which is only halfway through the town, right? That's still only <laughs> halfway across town to my house which I'm telling you people, the town is a block long. All right. So (laughs) it's halfway to my house and I'm just dying, right? Like, oh gosh, they're only going to do the church. And then they're pulling, when they start running their conduit through my yard, I'm out there talking to the guys. Hi, how y'all doing? Would you like some lemonade? (laughs) What's going on? Tell me about, you know, tell me your story. And they're like, oh yeah, it's coming. We're bringing fiber. I'm like, that sounds good. One of the guys is like, yeah, I have it at my house. It's really fast. You're going to love it. I'm like, can I bring you like, can I bring my ethernet cable out here? And you'll just hook me up now. Right. Like, what do I got to do? So I have no idea how they funded it. Apparently the church played a leading role. I have blessed the church. That was very nice of them. Um, but they, the fiber runs in front of my house now. So I'm going to get the fiber. They're like, they can't stop me now. That is, that is excellent. That is um, some, some great news for you uh, and for your community. I, I mean, you guys sound like you have so much amazing stuff going on um, right around you. I'm I'm gonna have to make a road trip down there, and uh, ne- next time we we head towards Texas, uh, we'll have to make a detour through through your county down there. I'm telling you, come right on down. We will we will get you the hookup with all the amazing and cool stuff we do. And of course, we have challenges. Of course, there's more we can do. We could be moving faster. We could do you know. There's people with great ideas making things happen in our communities right now. And there are people opposing them right now. We all have our assets and our challenges, and we all just have to keep taking small steps, keep doing practical, positive things for your community, because we are all creating the communities we want to live in, and we're creating them together every day. That is excellent advice. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to share what I've learned from rural people since 2006 and throughout my life and what 1400 rural people told us when we asked them. So it's been a wonderful journey to learn about rural and I'm just excited to get to share it with people. So thank you so much for the opportunity to do that. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Rural is Cool. There are many more great conversations to come. Hitting the subscribe or follow button will help make sure you don't miss any. If there's someone you think I should talk to, send me an email at ruraliscoolpod at gmail.com. I truly enjoy meeting rural people and helping tell their stories. This episode was produced by Brian Ferris. The artwork is by Casey Shaw. Do me a favor and be sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This helps more people like you find us. Until next time, remember, rural is cool.